tell you some money, man. I got two tickets for I'm taking everybody. And you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hang out and turn it up. This is John Wetton from Asia. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, everybody. This is Ann Wilson. And this is Iron City Rocks. Oh! Episode 516 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 516, we're joined by two very special guests, one longtime friend of the show, Jeff Plate of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, who will be on in just a little bit to talk to us about the 2023 tour that will be coming through the PPG Paints Arena for its annual two shows uh, in December. And also joining us from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, most notably from the band The Police, but also with Eric Burden and The Animals, um, Mr. Andy Summers will be joining us to talk about a show that he'll be doing at the Palace Theater in Greensburg on October 17th. Andy obviously uh, became part of the household uh, name The Police in the 80s, early 80s, one of the biggest selling albums of all time with Synchronicity, uh, just hit after hit after hit. They reunited for a period of time with Sting and Stuart Copeland. Uh, and, and did kind of a big worldwide tour that was an incredibly high-grossing tour, uh, but have, have since gone their own way. Andy has had many, many solo albums to his credit, an amazing guitarist in his own right. I think if you think back to the Police songs, people think of uh, you know Every Breath You Take, obviously a pretty intricate guitar riff if you've ever tried to play it. Uh, songs like Roxanne that were heavily reggae-influenced. Uh, but... Andy, an amazing guitarist, and not really thought of as an instrumental guitarist. You know, you think of 80s instrumental guitarists, you think of Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, uh, the likes of which have been on the show many times. Uh, Andy Summers, maybe not a name that's high on your list, but in really getting a chance to listen to his solo material, especially his instrumental work, just an amazing, amazing guitarist. And also, not only a musician, but a very accomplished photographer, uh, which we talk about in this interview. The show will be uh, his instrumental guitar work. Uh, he will be performing solo with just an occasional backing track. But So you, you have a chance to really experience and appreciate him as a musician, but also visually you'll be watching his photography on the screen. So a real immersive experience into the mind of Andy Summer. So we talk about that in the interview. So we're going to play you a little bit of Andy Summer's solo material, although you probably will recognize the song. And then we're going to get into the interview with Mr. Andy Summers.
pleasure to welcome down to the Rocks we have on the line, Mr. Andy Summers. How are you doing, Andy? I'm feeling pretty good between shows. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. You've got, uh, from what I've seen of this tour, uh, you're one-man band and, and visual uh, designer for the show. It's It's got to be a tremendous amount of work, but I would assume very gratifying. Um, can you talk a, a little bit? I think one of the things that I think might come as, is a, more of a surprise to to fans of yours is your love of photography and your mm. uh the book that you released um a series of glances can you just what what got you into photography um well the answer to that is i think when i was 14 15 16 17 in my hometown in england there was a cinema called the continental mm-hmm. and they only really showed sort of european art has films and this is where i was saw like you know fellini and Truffaut, Bergman, Agnes Varda, all these films of that period, mostly black and white. And mm-hmm. I was an avid m- movie guy. I was in that place a lot. I actually show a picture of the cinema in my show. Uh, and so, you know, what it exposed me to was the world at large. You know, I lived in a rural town in England, and mm-hmm. suddenly I'm seeing all these very sophisticated films from all over Europe. So it was a little bit of an education. Most of the films were in black and white. And uh, I think I took all that in and it's sort of a deep way because that's the age when you're very impressionable. But of course, I was a completely, you know, avid, you know, impassioned guitarist. Mm -hmm. I thought about, oh, I want to be a film director. I actually thought that at the time. How do you do that? Because I had no clue whatsoever. So I continued on being a guitarist. Um, And then, you know, some years later, you know, I'm in the police and we're starting out very early and the days of the police and we're in New York and surrounded by photographers all the time. So I started really looking at it all and looking at these girls and what they're doing. I was mostly females, actually. Mm-hmm. Now I thought, I'm going to get a camera and I'm going to become a very good photographer. I just sort of said that to myself like that. Had yes. no idea. But you see, the seed was already sown. And so I had this sort of visual information in my head. And, you know, I went out and bought a Nikon FE at B&H in New York, and I just started into it, and I never stopped. And, in fact, I did have a real passion for it, still do, and that's where it started. But there was a sort of a – the cultural influence was all those European art house films. Sure. Did you give any thought to getting into cinematography? I mean, obviously, you guys were were pioneers yeah. in the music video industry, but I mean, that's a very different medium than still photography in many respects. Well, it's all visual, but yeah, it's more technical. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, for me after years of being visual, let's say, and doing photography, making books, I have a definite sense of it. You know, and I've sort of got a project in mind if I ever get the time to, yeah, I don't know, make a film. I, You know, I've been out shooting. I've just come back from a week in Mexico, which was thrilling. You know, it was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And, you know, I was filming all the, shooting all the time, but no, still photography. Uh, it would be not. A, a, wow. Sorry. That's no, okay. Hang on. Stop that rubbish. Um, yeah, I don't think it would be such a huge step for me to put that together because I do stuff like this all the time. I made a video of Roxanne. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is it um, when when you started photography, obviously film was, was 
the medium of choice but did you make the jump to digital kind of begrudgingly or or you know do you still like to kind of pull out some 35 millimeter film if you can find it at this point it's very difficult now and extremely expensive Mm -hmm. no of course i was shot film right up until the last minute my last you know great splurge if you like was i i did a three-week trip around uh asia i went to china no no that was not china i've done eight trips to china i went to um what's it called now what's the name they changed the name of the country um i was in laos cambodia japan um i didn't go to china myanmar yeah Yeah, okay Uh, myanmar province was burma sure no myanmar so i went i did that i went myanmar think laos and then cambodia and and thailand that's that's the four countries in so i shot 90 rolls of film that was a difficult to carry that amount of rolls of film and um you know worrying about whether they were going to throw it through the x-ray which was a bit more primitive than this is 2011 then in 2012 like it came out just after i'd finished that trip with the first you know, digital M camera, which I would have been so great to have had on that trip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I went over to it and a lot of, you know, pretty sophisticated photographers all immediately went to it. And, you know, I've never gone back. Does it uh, ch- change your approach to, to photography, though, yeah. having the immediacy of the of the screen to see well, your yeah, shots? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. In fact, it's very in high. In fact, I think it actually made me a better photographer because, mm-hmm. you know, you you know the typical thing you see something interesting and you shoot it, then you go, well, maybe if I get down on my knees or yeah. let, let me like make it vertical, not horizontal, things like that. You know, you you and you can immediately see your result on the back of the camera. Uh, you know, which. One way you think, well, it's cheating. You're not. You're not a proper photographer. It's it's bullshit. You know, because I can actually. It's a, a great aid, and I think actually it improved my photography by being able to do that. Yeah, this is a photographer that learned with a DSLR. You know, yeah. not having that immediacy to realize how oh, the you know the aperture is not quite what I need, or yeah. you know the ice ISO is too noisy, whatever. I mean that you learn from it, but. Um, you know, I often wonder with with guys who did it with film so well, you know, it was always a gamble when, you, you know, you develop that. Well, yeah. And you know, what you're going to get. You know, when you practice photography all the time, you learn to, you learn to yeah. read the light. Yeah. You learn to read, this is pretty dark. But if I want to see that thing in the front, I've got to expose for that. You start to learn about exposure. Yeah. You know, ASA and, you know, I mean, when we were using film, the word was always bracket. So, you know, you shoot something at, say, F8 at 125, mm-hmm. and they go, well, I better do F11. Maybe I'll do 5.6 as well. So mm-hmm. you, you cover your your options. I mean, yeah. I look back over my old contacts, it's, they're pretty good. You know, I yeah. learned, you you learn it, you sort of sense it. But, of course, yeah. with digital, uh, you've got all the time in the world, you know, to do it. But yeah. I, I'm very down with my... Uh, um 15 minutes um you know with the camera i know it back to front and i know yeah. everything with it you know changing asas mm-hmm. you know if i shoot something in um low light at say 400 i go well i want to get more detail you know i man man if i can't get it and i, I say i want to shoot at f16 but the light's too low so and you can go mm-hmm. up as far as 6400 asa and you're going to get it Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, with a Leica, 
digital man in the old days if you shoot, shoot something at that asa rating it would be all pixelated out and everything yeah. well that's not true with digital so you can you, you've got more latitude yeah i often thought of, of guys shooting with film as kind of like the equivalent of if you had to walk out on stage and play with no monitor sometimes you you know what yeah. you're playing you, you know what it should sound like but it's still yeah. really really nice to hear it you know um for those uh, attending the show obviously this is going to be kind of a multimedia experience with, with your photography set to the music yeah. but could you talk a little bit about is it mostly stuff from the the series of glances or it's um, not mostly that it's it's um there is that in it um that's the current book and there is some of the, that photography is in the show but i didn't specifically to go out mm -hmm. to do that um you know it's just from my archive i suppose i thought mm -hmm. about it a lot you know i do a piece called the bones of chuang zhu which I actually put together a book where I've never published it yet. And it's, you know, I use certain guitar effects to play against that. And it's very mm -hmm. exotic. Uh, that was all shot in China. So that's a very specific sequence. Um, I do a very special thing on a sequence of Brazilian music that I play. Mm -hmm. I do, for instance, Round Midnight, which is a ballad by Thelonious Monk. And all those pictures are from downtown New York. So, you know, it's all fair pretty well considered and in improved upon as i have done shows and think see little things i can change i mean yeah. it's a work in progress but it's definitely a multimedia show with solo guitar some guitar with tracks there's a few police songs in there mm -hmm. and uh you know played instrumentally they sure. go really well you know, like I do tea in the Sahara, but I'd actually been in the Sahara Desert and shot a lot of pictures of the Sahara. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what an opportunity. Perfectly. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's all worked out. I mean, and I have to say it's going very well. I think it's yeah. very um, unusual show that no one else has got. And I also started talking quite a lot and telling some stories too because they're all pretty uh, funny yeah. stuff, you know, like yeah. on the and all that yeah. that certainly helps keep things in context too you know when you're talking about a trip to the sahara and you've got photos of the sahara and the music inspired by such yeah uh, yeah really an immersive evening of, of of art and music which i think is what's so fascinating about the show um and you're doing this completely solo you said you mentioned some tracks oh yeah there's nobody on set it's just me yeah so you've got a you've got to be everything the chief cook and bottle washer for the for the night um <laughs> do you like do you have triggers for the pictures or is it just kind of oh yeah it's all worked out. No, on I, it's, well i it's i'm the only one on stage but my assistant dennis has been with me for years mm -hmm. it's working three different computers and uh, not so much the guitar sound and we changed it when i did the first week first time out and i did about eight shows i was playing with two fender twin amplifiers mm -hmm. and i found you know just i'm very careful about my hearing Sure. Which is fine. Uh, I beg, ask the question: Can we do it without the amps, and we can run it through something else? So now I'm doing it with what we call in ears. I've just got the mm -hmm. things in the ears, and there's no amp on stage, and I can hear everything much clearer because you know I was having the amps behind me, the in ears monitored in front of me, and the PA system. There's an awful lot of sound. So mm -hmm. now we've got it down to just the in in ears, obviously the PA system, but it, it's much clearer and makes it much easier for me to play. So, yeah. you know, we found all this out by, you know, going out and uh, doing it we, because um, it's one thing to be in the studio. Mm -hmm. Then you get into a theatre and you've got 
all these people watching your every move. You start yeah. changing things. Yeah, that's the yeah, way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Andy, it sounds like a fascinating evening. I want to thank you again. October 17th at the Palace Theater in Greensburg. We'll be doing some police music, a lot of great photography. For those who haven't had a chance to check out the book, we'll have links for that on our site. And want to thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thank you so much, too, John. All right. All right. All the best. Take care, Andy. Push. Nowhere to go but everywhere tour. November 26th. Breathe. Stage AE. Special guests, Bad Wolves and Eva Under Fire. See the rock icons. Push. Loaded. The Greatest Hits album is out November 10th. Tickets on sale now at AXS.com. Brought to you by Promo West North Shore. Heard again, October 17th, the Palace Theater, Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Tickets still available, ElkoConcerts.com. You can visit our website as well. We'll have links for that show ought to be an amazing night uh, for those who are a fan of photography, uh, which obviously I'm guilty of that, uh, a fan of the police material, a fan of Andy's solo material, uh, just a, a sounds like a really, really cool night out. And we're going to turn our attention now to Mr. Jeff Plate, obviously drummer of Sabotage Metal Church, and as we've come to know, since its inception of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So it's great to have him back. We get a chance to chalk, I think, virtually every year for at least the last seven or eight. They will be coming into town to do two shows on December 16th at the PPG Paints Arena, the afternoon matinee, which I believe is 2.30, and then a 7.30 show at night. Um, For those who have never seen the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, I can't imagine what it is you are waiting for. This year they'll be performing The Ghost of Christmas Eve, The Best of TSO, and more. For those vaguely familiar with the the, uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, The Ghost of Christmas Eve is essentially the story that Paul O'Neill wrote that became the the DVD and also the special that you catch on PBS every holiday, you know, during their pledge drives. They'll tend to play that uh, when when, um, the holiday season rolls around. It's the story of the girl who uh, came to get out of the cold in the theater, ends up you know, going home to see your family, a wonderful, heartwarming tale that Paul wrote. Amazing music. Uh, and then you get kind of a second set of the best of the TSL um, with an intermission in between. Generally, depending on timing, sometimes the inter- intermissions cut short, but they never short you on the actual show. Uh, production to rival no one, really. Uh, this is, you know, think Kiss, think the Eras Tour for Taylor Swift level production uh, with amazing amazing music so without further ado mr jeff plate of the
something back This angel was told That no one could touch But angels could hold So on that night When the sky had cleared Among all the stars An angel appeared And then a sound filled the night of his light it was holding him there and as he looked towards the earth for the source of the sound on that cold winter night it was pulling him back to Iron City Rocks, we have on the line from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Mr. Jeff Plate. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good, man. Thank you. So you blink your eye, you, you unpack your road case, and it's time to go back out on the road already <laughs> again here in 2023. Um, tickets going on sale Friday for the Ghost of Christmas Eve, um, two shows at the PPG Paints Arena it is almost like clockwork. Um can you talk just a little bit about um, the material of the Ghost of Christmas Eve? Obviously, uh, made for TV, PBS, DVD sort of special, a little bit different than any of the particular albums. Is there anything particular highlights in that collection of music for you? Well, we we, we recorded this this TV special back in 1999, and, and at this point, we had our first album, Christmas Eve and Other Stories, and the mm-hmm. second album, The Christmas Attic at our disposal so so this the the soundtrack for this television show was really you know comprised of songs from from these two albums um now now that we've adapted the show to the stage we have actually added uh i think a song or two from from our third album the lost christmas eve Mm -hmm. the third christmas album that we did and you know this show this particular story the band loves playing this. It's got such a great energy to it. The audience has always loved it. 
It's a very, very good story. The, the TV special itself is, is run every year on either Hallmark or PBS or both. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a, a number of people have seen this. So it really is one of the more popular shows that, that, that we present. Yeah, it does have a – and it's – for those who have maybe lived under a rock and not seen you guys, you most – you know, most of these albums revolve around the stories that Paul wrote. Um, were there any memories you have of that actual shoot way back in? I don't even remember what year that was, but you know, you worked with uh, Michael Crawford and Jewel, and and you know, at the time, you know, you got some major stars. Really, you know, Michael Crawford, you know, amazing, was still worldly renowned from his time on the Phantom of the Opera and many other things. Anything special stick out as a memory from that time? Well, it was an interesting time because this was 1999. So mm-hmm. in 96 was the release of our first record. And, you know, there was a lot of questions about everything that was happening because this was all something new. We, we all came from a rock background. Mm-hmm. Paul O'Neill had this vision kicking around in his head for years. When we recorded Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224, then the thing really took off. And, you know, Paul had his vehicle to create the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So the first album was obviously a success. Right. Christmas Eve, Sarajevo was a huge holiday hit already. The album came out of the gate and, and went platinum almost overnight. The second album, The Christmas Attic, also did very, very well. And we had a couple songs from there, too, that really did well on radio. So... We knew we had something successful recording-wise, but we still hadn't really performed live yet. And this television show was basically presenting the band to the world, you know, also based around one of Paul's stories. But this was also the first year that we started touring. So there was a lot happening in this year, a lot of firsts. But the main thing that we knew was musically, Paul had created something that the masses were just in love with. So the next step was, you know, let's bring the band to the forefront. Let's show the people, you know, who we are and what we're doing. And then once we got on on the real stage in 1990 and started touring, that's when the whole thing really started snowballing and becoming so big. Were you, up until the time that, you know, you guys started doing this, you know, the preparation for the video of this, and did you kind of get the idea of the concept that Paul had visually? I mean, obviously, Paul kind of thought on a different plane than the rest of us uh, in a lot of <laughs> aspects. But, you know, I, I remember talking with him, you know, his, his ideas from watching Kiss and, and, and Pink Floyd and things like that. But, you know, you guys, you know, all had come from, you know, different sabotage and metal church. And, you know, you had your, your metal background. And, and you know, someone put tuxedos on you all and, and, you know, had snow coming. Did you, did you have an idea at this point visually that this was going to be something people bought, you know, because at at the time, you know, in the late nineties, you know, hair metal and, you know, sort of the big production videos were a little bit passe, but this worked in such a way. Uh, Yes. Part of it was, you know, you've got the holiday themes woven in and out of these songs. So there was something recognizable there for everybody. You know, no matter what genre of music you listen to, you recognize some of this music within within these songs that Paul wrote. Mm -hmm. But you know what? To your point, it it was interesting when we first started this. Of course, there was a lot of head scratching. Mm -hmm. But Paul 
was just so insistent, and, and you just kind of touched on this. He was one of the most unique people you're ever going to meet. There, there was right. nobody more dedicated and focused and energetic about TSO than Paul was. So he knew kind of from the beginning that he had something that was going to be really popular if he could just get all the things to fall in place, and he did. So yeah. up to that point, there was no denying that what he was writing and recording was successful. Right. The, the, like I mentioned before, the next step was, you know, performing it live and, and bringing it visually to people. So there was still some questions about all of that. But, you yeah. know, to that point, I was I was like just standing back on, hey, so far, this guy is batting a thousand. You know, yeah. <laughs> we might argue with him. So yeah. it really worked well. I mean, you think about some of the risks there, you know, in just the amount of production costs that go into what you guys do, a swing and a miss at that level, at that cost, could have been devastating. You know, we, um, and even how to market this. You know, if you had taken, you know, and just done what every other band did in the '90s, and just done, a, you know, a series of videos to to MTV, VH1, whoever at that point was actually playing videos. That may not have worked quite as well as is the approach of this long form video that kind of gave people like me sitting in you know the Midwest or Northeast United States an idea of you know we know what they sound like, but what does this translate to you know? So it was a yeah, it was a risk, but well, a, a, a well played. You 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 mentioned the, the Midwest and Northeast. I mean, this we know Christmas as cold and mm-hmm. snow and yeah. you know all of that and. You know, that's all part of this show, too. I mean, yeah. it, it take, takes place, you know, late December. So you kind of had the feeling you knew what that felt like to that girl, how, you know, she was cold and she's mm-hmm. in this old theater and stuff. So you could you could relate to that. But, but Paul, he was a really smart, smart man. And, and you just touched on something, too, that a lot of people don't think about is the enormous risk mm-hmm. involved in trying sure. to do this, you know, yeah. the TV show itself, making the records, none of this is done for free. This is, this all costs a lot of money. And Paul invested, you know, not only his life and his time into this, but the amount of money it took TSO to get up and running, to even get out of the parking lot, yeah. was more than people realize. But once it took off, then all of that was, you know, that all made it well worth it. So he was, he was very, very smart, very clever when it comes to this. But the marketing part, I think Paul felt, even though the holiday thing was there, he was still a rock and roll guy at heart, mm-hmm. and he know that he knew that if he could, you know, attract many, many different people that were listening to different styles of music. You kind of had all that encompassed in the records, but now if you could bring that to the stage and make it just as cool as possible and, and big and visually, you know, spectacular, hey, you know, he had all the ingredients and, and he was he was risky enough. You know, he took the chance on making it all work. Yeah. And he certainly did. Yeah, that, that's a that's a I think a key component. I think everybody can look at this and say, you know, he had a vision. He had. You know, obviously great storytelling, musicality, but the gambler in this is, I think, the part that yeah. often gets overlooked because, you know, you, you go back and just doing some reading on some other artists and the amount of money spent on a four-minute video, 
you know, you guys were talking, I'm trying to remember exactly how long this was. It was at least an hour, you know, of cost and camera crews and all that stuff to do that. And and then the production cost to take this world. If you had gone out to, you know, three quarter empty houses, this, you know, this would have been a short, short trip, no matter how brilliant it was, Um, you know, artistically, if it, you know, people don't show up or, or it's not a, marketed to them correctly you know there, there was a lot of risk you know the, the thing about the ghost of christmas eve is the story was very good and yeah. it connected with a lot of people and in the very first record christmas eve and other stories i, I think that's that's some of paul's best work mm-hmm. the story that he wrote with that album just connected with so many people and once people started realizing that yeah. That wow, you know, this story kind of speaks to me, and you know, the person sitting next to them is thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. and then they realize, wow, I can bring my kids to this show, I can bring my grandparents to this show, everybody in between, and we've already had we already have a fan base to start with, but the reason that it just broke so big was because a, I believe the you know the holiday themes and the music, you know, mm-hmm. gave something recognizable to everyone. But that story is the thing that really held the whole thing together. Yeah. And once people once people were able to take that in and feel connected to it, one thing led to another. And, you know, we went from theaters for the first two or three years to small arenas to all of a sudden major arenas and then selling them out twice a day within the yeah. course of about five years. It's unbelievable yeah. how fast this thing took off. So it was, it was great. Yeah, it, it is fantastic to see, and and now you guys are you know, even with you know the unfortunate passing of Paul, uh, you know the organization, the family seems to have learned the lessons and and how to keep this you know continuing at full steam. I mean, it, it uh, sure sure you know I think for as a fan well, you you know you don't walk out and you have the show going, boy you know it really is missing this now, you know it's 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 held up well. It's the, you know, the music is still as relevant. The stories are, aren't dated. You know, it, it is an amazing my, legacy. My, yeah, myself and along with several others have been here from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And Paul, Paul surrounded himself with some very, very good people. You know, the management staff, yeah. the production mm-hmm. staff, they're fantastic. His family is, you know, ultra supportive the man created something that's become a tradition and you know and we don't say that lightly but millions of people every year look forward to tsl listen to tsl it is a fabric of their holiday now and hey you know i remember recording christmas eve stereo scratching my head thinking you know Mm. god this is kind of crazy yeah here we are (laughs) all these years later and it's like hey it's uh he he nailed it you know paul was Mm. very brave and and even taking the chance to do this, but uh, it's all it's all really worked out. Yeah, I think that the tradition thing is 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 got to be a wonderful thing to get to that level because you are you guys are you're up there with a Christmas story on Christmas Eve on PBS or on TBS. Sorry, um, you know people need yeah. to watch Christmas Vacation every year and get out you know the Griswold sweater, and people go to the TSO. <laughs> you know it, it's take mom or dad or you know, the kids to see TSO and it becomes, you know, you go to this show and, and I think a lot of us who, who knew the band, you know, the ingredients that went into the band, you know, were kind of like, oh, it's cool. It's a metal Christmas concert. And you get there and you're like, this is in it, not the audience I expected, but, you know, it becomes 
a neat thing because you take your kids, you take, you know, the in-laws or your parents or, uh, and it's a great, you know, but it's one of those things you need to do before you get to Christmas. You build the gingerbread house, you see the TSO. I mean, it's, that's, yeah. a, that's, that's a great, my, uh, great place to be. My, my, my neighbors are, are an older couple and they came to see us for the first time a couple of years ago. And I said, what did, what did you think? And she says, that was surprisingly wonderful. Yeah. Like, they didn't know what to expect, and lo and behold, they came out of there going, wow, that yeah. was just awesome. You know, another another part of this, too, is, is one thing that Paul was always very conscious of was ticket price. Mm-hmm. So our, our ticket prices are very reasonable. You look at any show that does what we do on the scale that we do, yeah, it's... ticket prices are, are, are two to three times more than what we, than what we charge. But Paul yeah. was very aware of the family element. He wanted people to be able to come with their family, with a group of people, not break the bank, buy a program, you know, have a drink and some popcorn yeah. or whatever. Enjoy the enjoy the show without feeling the pressure of, of you know, of it financially. So yeah. this is something, too, that's really kept the things, you know, alive and growing. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, the first week, for those who are not aware, $39 tickets. Uh, try to get $39 tickets to an arena show for anybody at this point. Um, that's one thing that the, the uh, pandemic has seemed to do is cause quite a surge in in a lot of acts ticket prices. You know, it, so it, it's refreshing to see that. You know, for the yeah, yeah, and honestly too, you know, people don't don't shy away from the low ticket price, thinking it's a bad seat. There is not a bad seat at a TSO show. No, the, no. the production is so big. The sound is so dialed in. It really, no matter where you're sitting, it's fantastic. So, yeah. you know, take advantage of that while you can. At least in Pittsburgh, we know you could sit in the rafters, and Joel and Chris will come at you on a forklift or something every year, <laughs> yeah, or come running by. No matter where you're sitting in that building, the two of them will will be in your neighborhood. Uh, so you're absolutely yep, right. yep. With Jeff, and good for them. I'm just gonna sit. I'm yeah. going to sit on my drum stool and enjoy it and just watch those guys. <laughs> yeah, we know that you're doing the most work, though, at the end of the day. Well, Roddy, hey, I, thank I, you. Roddy seems to, to get a few steps on the Fitbit in his show as well. But, you know, but oh, yeah. uh, Jeff, I want to thank you so much. It was a pleasure catching up with you again. The shows are coming to PPG Paints Arena. The tickets will be on sale on the 15th, $39 for the first week. That's December 16th is the actual two shows. Um, and we will look forward to seeing you in about three months, man. Sounds good. All right, again, The Ghost of Christmas Eve and The Best of the TSO, December 16th, two shows at the PPG Paints Arena. That's 2.30 and 7.30. Tickets are on sale now. Plenty of amazing seats still available. And then as I kind of joke with uh, Jeff in the interview, you could sit anywhere in that arena and Joel Hoekstra or Chris Caffery will be somewhere extremely close to you at some point during that show with uh, the amount of hydraulic lifts and running around uh, the arena that these guys do. There is not a bad seat in the house. The show is not technically in the round, but those guys sure run around. So um, don't worry about uh, where you might be sitting in the, in the venue. There isn't a bad seat. And the, the spectacle could probably be seen from somewhere at Duquesne uh, when you're watching the show. And I don't mean Duquesne University. I mean the town of Duquesne. You can see the production from. So get yourself to the show if you have not been there before. Also, again, a reminder, Andy Summers, October 17th, Palace Theater. That's an Elko concert production. 
I mean, an amazing night of music, visual aspects, uh, preparing to have my mind blown. So I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. All of our social medias are Iron City Rocks. Drop us an email at ironcityrocks.com. I'm sorry, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Uh, for suggestions for the show, if you're in a band and you're interested in being on the show, you've got a band that you love that we've never talked about, a band that you're tired of hearing about, let us know. Love to hear from you, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to us. 